This Washington Post Live podcast is in partnership with National Geographic Documentary Films, bringing you premium documentaries from the world's best filmmakers, only on National Geographic. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Director Don Porter and journalist Deneen Brown join Washington Post Live to discuss Rise Again, Tulsa in the Red Summer their new documentary about the Tulsa Race Massacre and the years of violence that preceded it. Let's listen. Good afternoon and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Robin Gavon, Senior Critic at Large at the Washington Post. And it is my pleasure that today joining me are two women behind the powerful documentary about the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre and the racial violence that preceded it. We are joined by producer and director Don Porter, as well as our own Denine L. Brown, who serves as contributing reporter for the documentary. Thank you both for joining me. Thanks so much for having us and so good to be with you both. Thank you, it's great to be here. So I wanted to to really just start uh, from the beginning, which is uh, sort of the thought process, um, Dawn, about wanting to make this documentary. I mean, uh, this is the 100th anniversary, but I'm wondering what compelled you to really want to tell this particular story? You know, um, I was uh, familiar with the Tulsa massacre. I had done four short films for the Smithsonian African American Museum of History and Culture. And one of those short films was uh, retelling the Tulsa story with some original footage. But I wasn't aware of the facts of the Red Summer. And so National Geographic called me and asked if I would be interested in doing something about Tulsa. and the Red Summer, and they mentioned that they were uh, co- already collaborating with Deneen. And uh, to tell you the truth, that was a very big draw for me because I come from a journalism background. I believe it's so important to have uh, accurate facts and her involvement made me feel like I would have an expert in-house um, and that we could really dive into the story. It became clear as soon as Deneen and I started speaking that at first she was going to be a consultant and she was going to be our expert resident brain, but it became so clear that with her personal connections to Oklahoma um, and her passion for this reporting, um, I asked her if she would be on camera and she accepted. Um, and, And so I think that that just adds a beautiful poignant layer to this story to have it told in part through her eyes. Yeah, I mean, that leads me perfectly to my question for you, Deneen, which is, I mean, you have that that personal connection to Oklahoma. You are an Oklahoman uh, and you have family there. Uh, one, I'm curious how much you knew about uh, the Tulsa story before you started reporting it for The Post. Um, if you were intimately familiar with the, the t- details of it, of it or if it was just sort of uh, um, you know, a, a hum below the surface. And what drew you into the project? Uh, so yes, I, I love to tell the story. My people are from Oklahoma. <laughs> my father's people are from Oklahoma. And my great 
grandmother lived in Tulsa. My grandmother was born in an all-black town 60 miles from Tulsa. It's called Foley. It's famous for its black rodeo. Um, my dad lives in Tulsa now, and he, he built his church in North Tulsa, which incorporates Greenwood. I'm from Oklahoma. I grew up playing in the red dirt there and riding horses. <laughs> and um, this all started when I, I drove uh, basically from Kansas across the Cimarron Turnpike, the Tornado Alley, to go visit my father and my stepmother. And we were having lunch on Black Wall Street. And I looked around and I noticed that it had become gentrified. And I knew that this was sacred ground. I knew that this was the site of a massacre, one of the worst incidents of racial terror in US history committed against black people. Now, um, in terms of my family story, my aunt told me that when my grandmother, whom we call Mama Helen, uh, was growing up in Oklahoma, she used to hear adults whisper in the kitchen about, they called it the Tulsa, the riot. At the time, they called it the riot. And um, as you know, Robin, in Black culture, children are seen and not heard, right? So you kind of stay away from adult conversation. But it was something that was whispered about in my family. I don't remember exactly when I kind of it crystallized for me what happened. Um, but I know that as a child, I've always been interested in the story of my people the story of Black people, the story of Black history. And I knew, even as a child, uh, sitting in those classes, those integrated classes, that there was something missing from my textbook. And um, I wanted to find out what was missing from the textbook and what happened to my people. So yeah, this it's story about the Tulsa, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that one of the, the things that seemed to um, sort of bring you into the story in, in contemporary times was the fact that finally uh, the gravesite or the suspected gravesite was going to be explored. Yeah, so what happened, I, I, I also love telling the story. Um, after that visit with my dad, I flew back to Washington and I told my editor, Linda Robinson, whom you know is this amazing editor at the Post, what I saw in terms of gentrification on Black Wall Street. And uh, she said, that's a great story. And the Washington Post sent me back to Tulsa to do the reporting on the ground. That story landed on the front page of the Washington Post in September 2018. And then two days later, the mayor of Tulsa is at a community meeting where the Reverend Turner stood up. He held my story and he said, um, you're developing North Tulsa, but you wouldn't have this land had there not been a massacre. What are you going to do about it? And that's when the mayor announced that he was going to reopen the search for mass graves. So that's happening now. As you know, in October 2020, uh, Tulsa discovered a mass grave in Oakland Cemetery. You can see it in the picture. And as we speak now, they are exhuming remains from that mass grave. They found as many as 28 coffins in that mass grave. Um, this was unmarked land. There were no headstones in this part where this mass grave was discovered. And so scientists are continuing to uh, examine the bones. They're looking for trauma, any signs of bullet fragments or charring or burning that would connect 
the remains that they found in this mass grave to the massacre, the 1921 Tulsa race massacre. You know, what is so powerful about the documentary is that it, it tells the story of, you know, uh, Tulsa, but it also puts it into extraordinary context, meaning that the story of the Red Summer. And um, I, I'm just wondering, Deneen, if you can talk a little bit about um, what that really meant, the Red Summer, where that name comes from, and the, um, the violence that um, led up to the particular violence in, in Greenwood. Yes, uh, so Red Summer was a term that was coined by James Weldon Johnson. Many of our listeners may know that James Weldon Johnson was a composer with his brother of the National Negro Anthem. He called this reign of terror that um, consumed as many as 25 cities across the country when white mobs descended on black communities and massacred black people. He called this reign of terror Red Summer to describe all the blood that flowed in the streets of these cities and communities. Again, um, during Red Summer, you had massacres in Washington, DC. You had massacres in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, Chicago, Elaine, Arkansas was one of the worst massacres in US history. A lot of people don't know about it, but Don features it in this film where we travel to Elaine, Arkansas, and we talk to descendants of massacre victims. I stand on the soil where, of cotton plantations and cotton far farms, um, and we explored what happened during the, the massacre that occurred in Elaine in 1919. This all set the stage for Tulsa, this reign of terror where Black uh, people were killed by white mobs set the stage for the 1921 Tulsa race massacre and also beyond to Rosewood. And so that's what I was hoping in my reporting to capture, that this reign of terror is all connected. And before we continue with that, I wanted to, to circle back to you, Dawn, to talk a bit about um, what has been described as um, economic uh, jealousy and some of the motivations behind uh, the violence. Um, can you speak to, to that and the fact that so many of these communities were not just Black communities, but they were successful Black communities? Sure. Um, you know, one of the, the, the benefits of working with a journalist is um, the reporting helps you see patterns and it helps you go beyond. I, I think there, to the extent that people knew about Tulsa at all, there was this misimpression that it was an anomaly, that it was a one-off event. And, and actually what we see is uh, an all too familiar and disturbing pattern where the, the communities that are targeted are successful communities. That doesn't mean that all of the residents were wealthy, but it means that they were thriving um, economically, socially, people were just living their lives. They were bakers, they were hairdressers, they were porters. They sometimes, some of them were very wealthy. Some of them were uh, owners of property. But even more than the the ones who were on the the really extreme end of wealth, um, to me, what was so um, striking was 
you just literally saw black people living their lives. You saw them with uh, good churches and schools and a self-sufficient community. And, and that fact was almost enough to be a threat to this idea of white supremacy. And so there are there is a consistent pattern of um, you know, blacks trying to unionize. That's the Elaine Arkansas story. Uh, or uh, blacks just doing well. That's the Tulsa story. Um, and uh, there's, it's coupled with, uh, you know, a trumped up allegation of some uh, black man being an aggressor against a white woman. And that is enough to set a match to a powder keg. And which uh, in all of these cases led to the wholesale killing of black people in public and with the sanction of the government. Um, and so, you know, one of the things um, that was so important to me in understanding these facts is if you understand the motivation for the attacks, you kind of rewrite this story in a way that's factually accurate. There was envy at the success of black people. That is not how we are taught our history. We are taught that we are constantly struggling and resilient and but downtrodden. What was actually happening was in that early part of the, the, the 20th century, um, blacks were doing well and they were doing remarkably well considering they were just a few decades out of, of slavery, out of being enslaved. Um, and so, you know, people always say to me, was this so difficult to do? Was this, um, you know, such a hard film to make. And of course, watching images of, of killing is, is brutal and terrible. But um, as Deneen mentioned, there were whispers about these atrocities in, you know, I didn't grow up in Tulsa, but I heard whispers about, um, you know, kind of threats to black people. So I wasn't as shocked by the violence as some others have been. But what I was shocked by was the understanding um, that we were strong and doing well, and that it was actually envy and not just some random hatred of dark skin uh, that was kind of instigating this amount of terrible violence in this whole period. Well, I know one of the, the most dis disturbing stories certainly is about um, Will Brown Will Brown in Omaha, um, who was uh, a black man who was killed there. Um, Danina, if you could could speak to that. And you know, I'm also very struck uh, by uh, some of the factors in the backlash. Um, you know, as described as the economic insecurity of white citizens, white supremacists, the perceived um, the the fact that black people were simply living their lives and that was an affront uh, to their white neighbors. I mean, uh, that really resonates uh, still in 2021. Um, how do you sort of connect all of those dots and then this, you know, the, tell the story of Will Brown? So uh, as Don said, there was tremendous economic envy uh, uh, of black people who had prospered just years out of enslavement. I mean, some of the, the people were formerly enslaved black people and they built these towns uh, who, the, because of segregation, they were um, self-contained black worlds of prosperity. They had schools in Tulsa 
They had as many as 10,000 black people living in Greenwood. They had 30, 30 uh, restaurants. They had luxury shops. They had black millionaires who owned oil wells. There was a black man who owned six private airplanes. There were uh, 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 black um, business owners who owned luxury hotels that would rival any luxury hotel across the country. So again, these in Tulsa, which was uh, called by Booker T. Washington, Booker T. Washington visited Tulsa in the early 1900s and he called this Greenwood Negro Wall Street. We now call it Black Wall Street, but he said because of all the bustling prosperity, it looked like Wall Street. So again, it was destroyed in the Tulsa Race Massacre that began on May 31st, 1921 and ended on June 1st, 1921. In Omaha, Nebraska, what you have uh, there is Will Brown was uh, a black man. He was about 40, but you showed the picture of him. Um, he had severe arthritis. Uh, he was accused of assaulting a white woman as she walked with her partner, as she walked with her boyfriend down the streets of Omaha. And, you know, witnesses, you know, those who knew him said he, he, he could barely walk himself, but he was accused of this assault. And as Don was saying, many of these, uh, some of these massacres were sparked by the false accusations that a black man had attacked a white woman. It was all, all it took was the spark of an assault uh, for a white mob to descend on these communities and destroy the economic prosperity. So uh, Will, in the case of, of Will Brown in Omaha, he's taken to a, a courthouse. And this was a brand new courthouse in downtown Omaha, brand new building in 1919. And the white mob descended on the courthouse, demanded that the sheriff release Will Brown and then you can see in the picture there, they began scaling the walls in this blood loss, uh, demanding that the sheriff release Will Brown. And finally, he's um, pulled out of a window. They, they string him up to a, a, a light post at the south part of this court, court, courthouse. They shoot him more than 100 times. They uh, dismember him. They cut off fingers and toes. They burn his body. Um, so it was, it was a horrible, horrible massacre. Also, one of the things that listeners have to know, there was a, a, a mayor in Omaha. He was more liberal. He tried to intervene. He tried to save Will Brown's life. They nearly tore the white mayor apart for trying to defend Will Brown. So that's a kind of racial hostility and frenzy that consumes Red Summer and again, leads up to Tulsa, the 1921 Tulsa race massacre. So these, these are chapters in our history that we need to know. We need to understand that this happened. As, as I say in the film, you know, it's not a movie. You know, it's not a chapter in a book. It's not fiction. It really happened to our people. It happened to our people. Hundreds of Black people were killed in these massacres. And that helps us understand the context in which we're li living today. And in or when you reckon with that history and you're looking back at the records, I'm wondering, you know, there's on the one hand these postcards that capture some of these horrible moments, 
And then there's also the role of the black press and Ida B. Wells in documenting these things in real time. Um, how Im important were those uh, sources in, in creating the documentary, Don? Um, those were incredibly important, and uh, they're important for a number of reasons. Um, we are living in a time today when uh, facts that are unarguably true are disputed. And so it was very important to me that whatever we described in this film was uh, supported by reporting. That's one of the reasons why it was such a joy and a pleasure to work with Deneen um, and some of the other experts that we that we interviewed. Um, it also, as a, as a filmmaker, it was just a delightful kismet to have Deneen, our black female reporter, um, following in the footsteps of Ida Wells and uncovering before our eyes uh, this, this current day truth. You know, um, the black press uh, behaved marvelously. It uh, just fills me with pride to think of what Ida Wells and the papers across the country did to document the atrocities. And that documentation uh, was there for the asking. You know, many, many people have remarked to me, and I, I have the same experience myself, of not learning about Red Summer, not learning about the Tulsa massacre um, in school. And, uh, you know, you have to ask the question why. Um, the sin of omission is as great as the sin of commission, uh, in my opinion. And so part of what Deneen's reporting has done for us and what we document in the film is, is meant to begin to address those sins of omission. One of the, the really fascinating pieces of information that you unearthed, Deneen, is the story of, um, of Dick Rowland in Tulsa. And he is one, the, the victim of misinformation um, in the spark that sets off the massacre, but also you sort of dove into um, his backstory and discovered some interesting possibilities. Can you talk a little bit about who he is uh, and the role he played in the Tulsa massacre and what you learned about him? Yes, oh wow, I love the story of Dick Rowland. Uh, this was uh, another story assigned by my editor, Linda Robinson, who said, well, tell us about Dick Rowland. We don't know much about him. So Dick Rowland was a, a teenager. He was a black teenager uh, working as a shoe shiner in downtown Tulsa. It was segregated at the time. He was making so much money polishing, polishing the shoes of oil men that he had a diamond in his belt buckle. So that's where he got this nickname, Diamond Dick Rowland. He called himself Diamond Dick Rowland. Well, he's working as a shoe shiner on May 30th, 1921 in downtown Tulsa, where uh, he goes to use the bathroom in a, in a building called the Drexel Building. It's the only building because of racial segregation that black people working in downtown Tulsa were allowed to use the restroom. So he, he, um, he goes into the building, he steps on an elevator, that's operated by Sarah Page. She's a young white woman. She's actually 17 year old white teenager. And uh, when whatever happened in the elevator, when the doors opened, uh, Sarah shrieks. 
and uh, Dick Rowland runs and a department store clerk um, calls the police and uh, Dick Rowland is later arrested and taken to the courthouse where mobs demand that he be um, uh, released again uh, for lynching and then Black World War I veterans mar march to the courthouse and say, no, there will not be a lynching today. You know, they had gone to Europe to fight for democracy. They knew how to fight and they were not having another lynching of a black young man in Tulsa. So uh, on May 30th, 1921, the Tulsa Tribune runs a headline that says, Nab Negro for attack on white girl in elevator. And that that's a whistle call to the white clan members in Tulsa to come to the courthouse and other white members of the white mob. Now, Dick Rowland, what I did in the story that ran um, just a couple of weeks ago, is I went back in the past to find out who Dick Rowland was. So again, he's a teenager. He uh, had been adopted by a black family in Greenwood. And a, a lot of his family members his, who are still living today say that Dick Rowland and Sarah Page were actually in love. Like they were starstruck teenagers. And it may have been the case that after this massacre, they escape. Dick Rowland is taken uh, out of Tulsa. He survives the massacre. And later on, the family member said that Dick Rowland and Sarah Page got married and lived in Kansas City or somewhere. And he may have changed his name and certainly she changed her name. But it, this is what's great about the story. It all started with this love between these two teenagers on this. And we don't know what happened on the elevator, but she, I mean, it could have been a love story. So that's what I wow. found out. I hope that's true. I hope I hope that's true. As as we now um, you know learn that soon uh, Juneteenth will be uh, a federal holiday, um, and so much attention has been turned towards what happened in Tulsa. I'm hoping that each of you could just give me a sense of whether you feel that um, we are reckoning with that history in substantial ways um, and, and what you hope that people will take away from the documentary. And I'll, I'll throw it to you first, uh, Don. I do feel that um, we are beginning to reckon with this history. Um, once the questions are asked, there's kind of no turning away from it. Um, and I have been very heartened by the response to this film and to so many others. Um, this is too large of a story to be encapsulated in any one project. And so, um, you know, it's my hope that with the many, you know, fantastic films that are out talking about Tulsa and our film that talks about Tulsa and also the context um, of, the, of the Red Summer, um, I um, am feeling that there's not there's not turning back from these truths. Um, and so I do find that very heartening. The question is um, how far this knowledge will go. I, so many people have mentioned that they did not learn about these facts in school. There's still a very large question of reparations. Um, when you see, which we show in the film, the itemized list of property lost by the citizens of Greenwood, um, and then understand that more than 6,000 people were interned in a camp um, in Tulsa, uh, some for up to eight days, um, you start to ask the question of why exactly governments can't 
begin to compensate people at least for their economic loss with interest and penalties. So um, I think the conversation has begun and we'll see about the reckoning. Uh, Janine, we have about a minute. Um, so I'm going to ask you if you can uh, just sort of give people a sense of what you hope they will take away from the documentary. Uh, okay, so I, I'm hoping that people watch the documentary and um, begin to explore what racism means, what the racist history in this country is. Um, and um, as I say often is seek an understanding of racism and oppression and racist history as though you were seeking water in a hot desert, as though your life really depends on it. So I'm, yeah, so learn as much as you can about racism, learn as much as you can about racial oppression, become what they call the anti-racist, which means actively engaged in the fight against racism. That's what you see in this documentary. You see descendants of these massacre victims crying for justice, crying out for equality, crying out for reparations, and uh, hoping that their stories be heard and that people will listen to them, listen to them and engage in this fight for justice. And I'm afraid we will have to leave it there. Um, thank you both so much. Uh, and thank you both for the wonderful documentary. And thank you for joining us uh, at Washington Post Live. And I hope that you will come back tomorrow at noon and join my colleague, Jonathan Capehart, for another installment of our Race in America, History Matters series. He'll be speaking with historian Annette Gordon-Reed about her new book on Juneteenth as we quickly approach that day. Thank you again for joining me and I'm Robin Gibbon for The Washington Post. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.